Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. This conversation with Diana Edwards is all about not just conscious dying and death, but also conscious living and how our relationship to death really informs our relationship to life. And yet so many of us are scared of having those conversations. So Diana's work and what she on her website is hoping to do through her work is to help all of us come to a better understanding of the dying process, the grieving process, and embracing death as a part of our life. Because actually when we do, it gives us an even stronger connection to our life today. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. Diana, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. If I can, I would love to start by just reading something from your website. Mm -hmm. Your website, wisdomtranscends.com, which is a fairly new launch and it's fantastic. But these words struck me from the first page. You write, I am often asked, what is conscious dying? And while I can certainly speak to this topic, I have realized that with the exception of several logistical aspects to dying, that living and dying are in fact the same thing. And the foundation of both is unconditional love. This is not a new idea. Many writers and spiritual teachers have expressed this concept well. As the American spiritual teacher, clinical psychologist and author Ramdas says, if I'm going to die, the best way to prepare is to quiet my mind and open my heart. If I am going to live, the best way to prepare is to quiet my mind and open my heart. As you write on your website, how beautifully simple and clear I mean, I think that, but I, I think this is such a scary topic. I'm curious, how did you come to get interested in this topic and work in this topic? That's a good question, and I get asked it all the time because it's not something most people talk about as freely as I like to talk about it, and I believe you have to talk about it freely. I think really the first time that it struck me was when I was a little girl and we were living in Bombay, India in 1963 to 65. And in those days, death was everywhere. I don't know how India is today, but you would see, you know, people with leprosy. I would see them in the car when I was going to school as a little girl and, and I would see people struggling and I would see you know, fragile animals. And there was a sense of withering and illness at a fair amount of places that we would go. And one of the things that really struck me was when I learned that there was a truck that came around in the morning and picked up people who had died at night. And it just seemed so odd to me. I remember asking my mother about it and she, you know, did her best to explain it to me as a five-year-old. But it really stayed with me over the years as I got older and grew up. And I just thought, why are people dying alone? And why are they dying on the street? It just didn't make sense. And it just became something I wanted to support and to help. I was comfortable with people talking about it to me. I was interested. And then I would find along the way, it's actually interesting, I was just having this conversation with a friend 
Do you remember the first time you saw a, a dead body in a casket at a funeral? Yes. Well, the first time I saw a person in a casket, I was 20. It was my grandmother. And I remember going in to see her, and she had her glasses on. And I had this kind of reaction, and I looked at my mom, and I just said, you know, why is she wearing her glasses? And she said, well, that's how everyone remembers her. And then I was standing around with all the people for, you know, the viewing, and everyone was saying how good she looked. And I'm like, but she's dead. I mean, it just, my brain was like, why are we talking about people? Either we don't talk about it and it's hidden from us, or we talk about it like they're still alive. Yeah. And, or we want them to look alive, or there's this implication that something like that. And so I was talking to a friend a couple of days ago before I came here, and she was talking about a funeral she went to with the open casket. And she said they had the same conversation. And I thought, well, not much has changed in 40 years. Yeah. That we're still acting like the person looks good. Why are we afraid to say that person's body is dead? They're gone, their spirit left, their soul left, whatever your belief system is. But instead, we try to put a stiff on our lip, take our grief home with us, hope we know what to do with it, hope we can fix grief later. You can't fix grief. It's a process. And this lifetime is also about loss. And loss teaches you how much you loved. So to me, it's this beautiful give and take. It's this beautiful dance. And I just want to keep that conversation more open so it doesn't become an end point. Mm. Death is not an end point. Mm. But I feel like that's how it's treated. Mm. I think it's improving, but I've been doing this for 20 years now. And I would say it's improving. There's a lot of great stuff out on the internet now you can follow. And I list a lot of that on my website because I really want to encourage people to be excited about, you know, there are these death cafes. Death cafes. Death cafes. This sounds like something from Harry Potter. It does sort of sound like <laughs> Harry Potter. But what's fun is that it started uh, with an, actually it started in Switzerland and France and then a gentleman in London picked it up and started them in England. They've made it to the United States. And it's just people coming together to talk about issues around death and dying. Hmm. There's no agenda. You're not allowed to try to sell anybody on anything. It's just discussion. Mm. And since then, there's so many other people like, I don't know if you know Caitlin uh, Doherty. She, mm. she is hysterical. She's a mortician. And she has a website called, um, I don't know if it's actually called it, but it's The Order of the Good Death. And she'll answer anyone's questions about death and dying or cremation or anything. She's trying to take, you know, the fear out of it as well. So there's just so much available today. Gail Rubin. I really encourage people to go to all these sites, but... Uh, do you think that the fear, because to me there's, there's kind of a link, I do think we have a fear of death and a kind of denial of talking about death. Certainly in the Western culture I was raised in, I know it can be different depending on where you are in the world, but I also, the thing I always noticed as a kid, it was the fear of talking about anything that was emotional or too close to the bone. And I often think that the two intersect. It, it, death and gr the grief process is mm -hmm. such a deep and complex emotional process that I think often you'll see people backing away. You know, they'll, I've, I've heard this from friends who are going through grief or going through illness. People actually don't know how to deal with the emotion of the event, sometimes more than the physical happening around the event, whether it's death or whether it's disease. That's often where we come unstuck as a society, I think. Well, you're talking about emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Everything I teach, no matter what it is, 
I teach emotional intelligence. Mm. Because we don't have it. We don't have a language. And emotional intelligence for me, and I apologize, but I'm, my goal is to make things sound really easy to understand. And so I don't use a lot of the fancy language I might have learned in graduate school. I try to make it really approachable. Which is great. Well, thank you. <laughs> so with the emotional intelligence, what I look at it as is emotional intelligence has two components. Are you aware of your emotions and how to manage them? And are you aware of other people's emotions? and how to manage them. Mm. Well, of course, you have to start with your own. You have to know when your triggers are, what things are playing in your mind, what interjected voices, all these. It's quite a vast topic, and it can be a lot of fun to explore. It ties into your beliefs, your fears. So if I can teach emotional intelligence, then I can open the conversation even further, because you can talk to me now about how you're feeling mm. and not just shut down. And I think we do a disservice to children, especially when Children witness death in some capacity, and then we don't talk to them about it because the adults are uncomfortable or they didn't, no one taught them to talk about it. Mm. And I find I get a lot of parents who want me to tell them how to talk to children, which was also inherent in why I wrote the books. I, I jokingly say they're from ages five to adults because my goal was to write them so adults would know how to process grief with a child. Well, and in reading the reviews, because uh, your book won several awards and got many reviews, and one of the reviews that really stuck out to me was, I'm paraphrasing, but it was um, Edwards is that rare children's author that can reach both child and adult at the same time, which I think is, is kind of a, a gift. So let's actually talk a little bit. Well, before we go to the books, you mentioned graduate school. You trained in drama therapy. Mm. What is drama therapy for the uninitiated? Because, I mean, I kind of, you know, I, I have a, a background in theatre yes. and I know of drama therapy, but it's not something I've ever really looked into and I'm curious. Well, drama therapy is one of the creative arts therapies. Mm -hmm. Music therapy, art therapy, dance therapy, drama therapy. And it uses the, you know, modality of, you know, acting out stories, if you wish. It can use, uh, you know, lots of mask and theatre techniques to... Um, physicalize you know your right. issues we were also trained in the program in other modalities especially art therapy i then liked that very much but wanted to enrich it with a few other things so i went on and got postgraduate degrees in psychodrama group psychotherapy and sociometry and i used those in jungian santre which to me is drama therapy in the sand and what i like about these techniques that I use. We could use puppets in drama therapy. We used anything that allowed a person to express safely or as much from their own perspective as they wanted to. So we call it a distancing technique. My books are a distancing technique. Santre can be a distancing technique. Psychodrama, enacting any kind of drama, you watching a drama, distancing technique. Why? Because you're standing probably with me and we're experiencing it together I'm making sure you're safe. I'm protecting you and thinking about what your triggers might be. And then you can process the feelings that you see in the characters you've placed in the mm -hmm. sand or in the case of the books. There are a lot of questions in the books that say, tell me how Pat too feels or would you like to tell me how you feel? So that's the distancing. You have a choice. You don't have to go right into sharing your personal feelings. And if you can come to understand Patu's feelings around his brother dying in this case and other things, then the next time I say, have you ever felt like that? It's a safer space for you to tell me how you felt. Because mm. you're not alone. Mm. Patu did it. 
Yeah, and also, you know, having experienced the sand tray with you, because I was I was the lucky recipient of a sand tray, and I've never done it before. You know, yes. for anyone watching or listening, um, it's really fascinating because Dai has, you know, you had all of these figures, action figures, and toys, and characters. Uh, mm -hmm. Some you recognize, and some are plastic figurines that you've never seen before. And the way that you you prompt. Uh, you prompted me to kind of lay out my life as I saw it in this sand tray and then you interpret what I've laid out. It's a really fascinating way of, of doing it because it gets you really into that pure child essence state and out of your mind. It's, it's a really fascinating process and it certainly was helpful to me. Well, what I like about it is the sand, so people understand there's a box full mm. of sand and you put your hands in it and you create shapes, rivers, valley, whatever you feel like. Mm -hmm. And what's happening there is you're regressing. I'm trying to get you out of this part of your brain that is thinking too much. I want to drop you down to those formative years, especially zero to six, when that's all imprinting when we're a child at mm -hmm. that age. You know, our brains aren't contextualizing anything. Mm -hmm. We're just absorbing. And if I can get you there and then ask you questions, you'll start picking things from a much freer space. You're going to probably show yourself things you hadn't thought about. And I just feel it moves people deeper and faster. And in this world we live in, I just want to honor that we all seem to have so little time yeah. to take care of ourselves. And there is an element of fun and play to it, yes. which God knows we need. <laughs> like, God knows we always need a dose of fun and play and creativity in anything that we're doing, especially when it can be intense, because not yes. everybody... this. Not everybody is used to exploring their emotional self, their subconscious self. So I think that's fantastic. So let's get to this book. So this is actually a series of books. We actually, for those of you who are watching and not listening, we, we have the books here. But I must clarify that these are actually out of print. Mm -hmm. So... You can buy one for what? How many hundreds of dollars on Amazon? <laughs> no, no. I think on... it's eight dollars now. <laughs> right. It's okay. Okay. But um, I know that you said there was some crazy price through a reseller. Well, once there was, somebody called me and go, "Yeah, I'm like, that's yeah. not me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so before we kind of get into the the kind of what's going on with the books now, uh -huh. take me back to how these books were born. Because they, they came out in 2006, but I imagine it was a few years before... It was. ...that you started the process. Well, I was volunteering at a wonderful, wonderful children's grieving centre called Gerard's House in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm. And it's based on the Dougie's House model, which is uh, from Oregon, I believe. And I was volunteering there. I guess I was there about a year, year and a half. And we have... You have, like, a volcano room. You have a book library room. And the volcano room is where kids can act out any frustrations or anger with air hockey or, you know, hitting the batons or just things that let them express safely mm. anger. And then there was the library. And then there was the art. Well, in the library, we had all these books. And some of the children would want to go read a book. And many of the books were beautiful, but kind of ethereal, you know, like a beautiful story of a leaf that falls off a tree and dies and it comes back next year. Beautiful. There's a lot of that, you know, validity to that. But my problem was my kids didn't have those stories. The kids I worked with, for instance, I'd have a story like mom and dad were married. Mom and dad, um, I mean, mom got ill. She got very ill. Stress in the relationship. Dad left. Mom went back in the hospital. Child was sent to live with a grandparent. Mom died. Child never got to say goodbye. Hmm. So these were the stories I was dealing with in some of the children. And 
the books weren't answering them. And I happened to be living through, I always joke that these books took me six years and three days to write. One, because Nikki lived for six years before he died, and three days, because each book I literally just kind of poured out of me in one day each when I had lived it. Mm. So what I did with the books was I told that story, but through the dogs. And it was 90% true. The only thing I changed in these books was that Patu, who actually was with Nikki when he died, I changed it so he wasn't. Right. So that the children could relate to that. And in the third book, which is mainly the one that focuses on impermanence and change, and it's called Why Can't Everything Stay the Same? And in that book, Nikki dies away from Patu. And one of the art projects is, would you like, a re like to write a letter to Nikki for Patu, telling him all the things he didn't get to say before he got, you know, before Nikki died? That's pretty spot on for adults and children. I was going to say, like, that's great. <laughs> like, if you take only one thing from this conversation, the idea of if, you, if, you, if you're still in a grieving process or you've got old grief that you feel exactly. is in there, that's a brilliant process to do, to, mm -hmm. to, to write down all the things that you want to say or that you didn't get to say. Well, and we had Patu make a little sort of altar of photos and toys and go through his process. And I just feel there needed to be more books about the actual experience these children were having. And I have to say, since I wrote the books, I feel that even though my books weren't out there, out there, that somehow that message, that style, I have seen it much more accepted and incorporated in a lot more books today. And I'm really, ex I'm excited about that. Well, you and I talked about this the other day, and I've had this conversation with many friends over the years, and the Zs who, who I channel, they explained many years ago, they said, ideas and new energies drop into the vortex of humanity and some people will have the idea but not act on it mm -hmm. many people might act on the idea at once and of the 12 who act on it there might be one that goes out to multi-millions there might be one that kind of breaks the ice so i'm i'm with you i love that um wave of of when you start to see something that you perhaps have been working in in your way many years ago nobody had heard of it i really believe that whatever it is that we're doing there are multiple other people in other places doing the same thing and it starts to get grounded into society and hundredth monkey syndrome eventually it spreads and kind of becomes a bit more part of the consciousness i think that's right yeah and i think that's why it's so important to have the discussions to have the narrative out there because it is, it's a, some kind of a vibrational affinity to bring more in. Well, what, just to kind of backtrack a second to what you said about the kids that you were seeing who mm -hmm. had these splintered experiences where suddenly something dramatic changed in their life or somebody was gone and something wasn't explained. What did you see as the direct effect on those kids who had had this sudden exit or sudden change what did you notice in their behavior or, or still to this day, because I know you still volunteer, mm -hmm. what do you notice in the kids who aren't given the room or haven't yet been given the room to process what has impacted them? Well, I think what we have to take care with when we have a discussion about that is a couple of things. Everyone processes grief differently. Yeah. Type, temperament will impact that. You know, is it a child who's already expressive very introverted, very extroverted, that may play a part. The developmental stage, of course, is pivotal because I can work with a young child who doesn't seem to be exhibiting much grief, 
because he doesn't really get it yet. Mm. I mean, he's sad mommy didn't come home or something, and then maybe two years later, it hits them differently. Yeah. So grief isn't, you know, you. I tend to stay with families or the children as long as I can, just to touch base every now and then, check in, because it's gonna shift and change, uh, some more than others. Again, you don't fix it, but you wanna be there to help them, to witness it. Some children may have a lot of anger. Some may just shut down and not wanna talk. Some may just shrug it off like it's no big deal because they don't know what to do with all the pain they're feeling. Mm. Other children will come to me and say, you know, mommy or daddy came to me in my dream, and I believe them. And I have had that own experience of my own father came to me when he died. And I think just being okay with whatever they say and wherever they are is critical. The thing we also have to be careful of in the work I do is it's not my place to change a belief system. It's a little tricky. I have to honor where the family is. Like if you and I were talking about mm. death, you know, I could say, this is what I think, what do you think? And we could have a very adult yeah. conversation or have you ever felt that feeling? And you would say, mm, a child, I have to be careful that I'm not imposing my beliefs and I really want to yeah. honor the family's, you know, maybe religious or spiritual beliefs. So I don't have a simple answer for that. But if you're open and you're compassionate and you're educated, you need to be, you know, you need to be up to some speed on the different like developmental stages a child may go through. And you just witness and hold space with them. Mm. And it's that, a huge gift. Um, and they know you're comfortable with their pain. I was going to say, I think just even having someone in the room who isn't running away from uh, the topic or is perhaps introducing the topic in a kind of normal way is, is key. And that makes me think, so... I know that you printed 3,000, you self-funded and self-published this book, mm -hmm. and you printed 3,000 copies. You gave me one of the last sets, I think, that you had, and I gave it to our friend Shana, who took it into the school where she works, and said to me, oh my God, these books are amazing. We're using them with the kids. It's so, it's so well done, it's so helpful, it's such a helpful tool. So your six-year, three-day project <laughs> became this helpful tool. But what, you know, you were able to self-fund, which is great. What was the process for you? Like having an idea about, oh, I want to do a book, but not knowing anything about the publishing industry. How did that play out for you? I found it challenging and fun. Now, I will say I had worked in New York City from 1980 to 1990 in about five different professions, one of which was advertising. And one of my jobs was working in the print advertising department mm. and running things down for color print ads down to Hudson Street where the printers were and all for approval. So I had some sense of how it worked. Now, of course, I probably was coming in on the tail end of actually printing books that way now that it's digital. It's quite different than the way I did it. I wanted to do them in the United States if I could as much as possible. So I was able to find someone in Tucson who did them for me. The books were a challenge. I did have publishers who were interested but they wanted me to do one book in black and white mm. with sketches. And I understand why this is not an affordable model no. for a book, but I had such a vision on how I wanted it to be. And I started with the box because in grief, you wanna make a healthy, safe space, a container. So the box is your container. So for anyone who's on the listening version of this show, these books come in this lovely cardboard box that has Velcro at the top. And then they are all put inside. You've got book one, book two, and book three, and then your journal and drawings workbook. Yeah. So sorry, carry on, die. No, it, 
it just felt really clear to me what the vision had to be. And I made a choice. I mean, my husband and I talked about it. I was like, should I give these to the publisher and lose all control? And I didn't want that. Mm. I, I really wanted it to be my vision. I'm glad I did. I'm proud I did it. And even after they won the awards, you know, I sent them back out to publishers like. Now they're award-winning yes. books. Surely you're interested. Surely you're yes. interested. Yes. And no, again, no, there yeah. wasn't any interest. And you, you learn that I honored my creativity. I honored where I was, what I wanted to express. And I'm really at peace with that. I feel really good about that. And I got great letters from children and adults thanking me. And I don't know how much more, you know, well, that's beautiful because that, that really is the two sides of any creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. You've got your own personal journey, the part of you that's compelled or impelled to create this thing that you're going to have your own experience through and your own growth journey through. And then if you feel compelled to put it out to people, mm -hmm. it's how it affects those people. And as you, as you know and have said, there are so many people who these books have become a part of their lives and mm -hmm. a part of their way of living as a human being and processing, which is fantastic. But I will say, when we first met, I said to you, oh, what are you doing with these now? And at the time, they were a little bit more dormant for you or a little bit more past. But I'm, I'm yeah. happy to hear that you are considering ways right now as to how could you maybe bring these to people? Maybe it's digitally, maybe it's a, a website. So that's, that's in, the, in the thinking pot right now, yeah? It's definitely in the thinking pod, and I have no idea what I'm doing. I couldn't be, you know, less technical. <laughs> so this is my big challenge right now. But I would love to find a way to digitize them. Maybe I read them or one of my friends reads the voice of Patu. You know, something where you can download them and see them as the page turns. I, I don't know. I'd like to find a new way of bringing them forward. So that's where I am right now. I love what you just said because I think um, so many creative people, when we have this idea, we're like, oh, but I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. But honestly, if you know how to do A, B, and C, you'll find someone who can do the X, Y, and Z. And I, I, you know, there are so many things I can't do technically, and there are some things I can do. But I've found that if where there's a will, there's a way, and that's what teamwork and collaboration are all about. So. Um, I'm just curious, for anyone who's listening to this or watching this, um, your website, wisdomtranscends.com, perhaps signing up to the newsletter there, would be a way to get notified as to what the life of the Meet Patu books might be in the future. Is, is that the You're best thing You're challenging my technical skills. I'm not challenging. Well, no, sign no, up no I'm, I'm challenging your trust, maybe, that you are going to meet that technical person. Because, you know, we know how this, this is how it kind of works spiritually. Yes, it's it, like it, we it only is. need a few pieces to be active in us and to start walking towards something for no, the, right. for if it's flowing and if it's the right time for things to start coming in. And I've, I've always felt like there will be another life for these, for these books. But more importantly than that, um, I feel like the books were you putting your flag in the ground mm -hmm. around this work. And I think it's great that you're beginning to do more out there in the world because I think we need it. You know, the reason the show is called Impact the World is to hopefully inspire other people who are wanting to impact the world, whether it's five people or five billion people that they end up impacting. I think it's important we all share our knowledge, our passion. That's how we all learn and grow. And, and that's why I, I love that you have taken your interest and your knowledge around 
conscious dying, conscious living, and, and put them into, so far, these books and your website? Yes. <laughs> but what, what strikes me, a couple of things strikes me when you say that, is how do we look at impacting the world in our lives? Because from my perspective, when I work with someone, it's not so much topic specific. I mean, this is one of the things I do. And on my website, which I'm, I have an amazing young website designer who is uh, doing very creative things for me and very kind and patient. And she has set up the different categories of things I do on the site, mm. which is also, I designed a program of mindful awareness for high school and how that works. And they all intersect. But to step back from all of that, what, it begs the question to me is, what is creativity? When you say, you know, I'm creating this thing that impacts the world. I would also say each one of us's greatest, greatest creative act is your life. Mm. And I say that because there's nothing I believe in more than role modeling. The number one way we learn anything is not a book you read as much as I wish that were the case. Mm -hmm or a lecture or a TED talk, those are great. Mm -hmm. They're fantastic. I wish they had been around when I was young, probably would have changed my life mm. in really positive ways. But it's so much bigger than that. It's how you live your life. It's the mistakes, it's the ups, the downs, the not the one thing, the how did you role model change? How did you role model taking risk? How did you role model not knowing how to handle death that first mm -hmm. time and regretting that you bolted from the event or whatever, but this next time you challenge yourself. All of that to me is a much more beautiful story. And I struggle with telling that for people because mm -hmm. I want them to be able, I, I'm just so moved when people share their stories and I think how empowering. But that's great. So I, I don't in any way disagree with you, but here's, here's how I see creativity. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I think back to the creativity that I would credit with saving my life. Like, you know, when I was a teenager and mm -hmm. traumatized about various things, it was those singer-songwriters or those self-help writers who had bottled their energy and their experience in a thing that could reach me where I was living in England. Mm -hmm. I might never meet them. I might never get to experience them as a role model in life. That's for their personal life and who they know in their personal life. But they had taken their alchemy mm -hmm. and they had bottled it. Mm -hmm. And something in the way they had bottled it was right, the right formula for me, the right ingredient, the right nutrition, the right liberation. So mm. I completely agree with what you're saying. And I often, but I also often think that things like this, things like mm -hmm. the book, things like a, an audio recording, things like a TED talk, they're ambassadors of our essence when we aren't there. And I know that I love listening to so many different types of musicians or speakers or, you know, for me, it's, mm -hmm. never, it's never been one person in any field I'm interested in. And I feel like the gift of this time that we're in right now is we are able to, like, like you said, when we were younger, you would have to go to a bookstore and find a book rather than have free access to all of these TED Talks that we can see now. So I think that's the exciting thing about the internet being a platform through which it's kind of like a, to me, there's a cosmic um, force at work mm -hmm. with the internet too. It's a little bit of a hive mind and yeah. a hive energy mm -hmm. that we can tap into and, and find pieces that we need. So I agree with what you say. And I also know that sometimes it's the thing that we create 
that is the way that people are going to experience us as a role model, if, if that makes sense. No, fair enough. I agree with you. And I would almost say the bridge between us is that I hear role modeling in what you're saying. These mm. people, so I just to clarify, they're sharing their story through a song. Mm. They're telling you um, how they did it. I'm, I mean, more books like, you know, self-help book, How To, which I found enormous help with growing up because they really started becoming popular in the 80s. Yeah, that's I, I was true. in my 20s by then, right. but at least I had something to read and I remember them very well, the few books that started actually addressing things. But what I hear you saying, absolutely, I, I would just get lost in a song and find meaning or you know, any documentary on someone's journey. But see, mm. I would say that's role modeling because yeah. they're sharing their life and now I have something I can see and relate to. I, I go, well, if they can do it. I remember saying that. I would read books and on autobiographies or biographies like crazy because I would read them and go, well, if they can get out of that situation, then I'm fine. I can do it too. Yeah. They really empowered me and encouraged me. So in that regard, I guess I need to clarify it. That was a book because that's all we had in those days. But it was a story, a real story of their struggle and who they were. And they shared it. Which is funny because biographies are like my favorite books to read and it's, it's the struggle. I don't really mm -hmm. care about someone's achievements or accolades or, mm -hmm. I mean, that's all well and good, but it also doesn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm. What I'm most interested in is, is how did you get through that? Because that is helpful to me rather than me seeing you on some stage for five minutes, getting given this piece of plastic that does or doesn't mean anything. And then, you know, it's a moment in time and it's all, it's all kind of perspective and, circumstance if you mm -hmm. happen to be able to you know but I think one thing it, it kind of leads me to one thing I wanted to ask you one of the things I definitely have gone through as someone who's created things and put things into the world and it's possibly the biggest block that people I have worked with will present to me when I speak to them about this feeling they've got so for example they're like I want to create this book on death and dying mm -hmm. what usually comes up for us as creators is a fear of, well, who am I? Am I good enough? Did you go through any of that when you were going through, when you were going through this, especially as you were self-funding, which in one it's way means risk. there's no, it's a huge risk, but also there's something very validating about a publishing company going, oh, Diana, we'd love you to write this book. You know, at least they believe in you. So even if you're struggling with yourself, but having self-funded stuff myself, it made it more intense my own dance with my psyche as I was kind of being willing to finish this thing? Yes, right. is the big answer. But just to show, I mean, I'm 60 years old almost. I am a teacher in so many ways, but I am still a student in so right. many ways. And to answer your question, when you asked me to do this podcast, I went, why? I'm not famous. I'm not, you know, and then we had that lovely discussion about impact the world, which I think what you're doing there is terrific because we do impact the world. We all are impacting the world. And I know so all many people time. do, I know, and they're, they're not represented. And I just wanna thank you for <laughs> representing more people who are out there doing a, a big part. And if we do believe in the field that we're feeding higher consciousness to that then is therefore available to all, then every little thing anyone's doing matters. Totally. And thank you for honoring that no. in people. Well, I, wow. think it's, I think it's huge. Well, I'm, you know, thank you. I'm just grateful to be able to do it. But more importantly, you, you touched on something that I think is part of the mental disease that we all go through. Mm -hmm. You spoke about the 80s. So I was born in 76. 
I think going back 30, 40 years when the gatekeepers of anything that went into the world were the media companies, the record industry, the publishers. Mm -hmm. We only had a small number of people who were allowed through those gates to put things out to us as a society. And so I think this idea of famous that we all grew up seeing as normal, there was, there was kind of this, oh, they're better than everyone else because they're famous or they wrote a book or... And what I love about now is all of that's just falling away. It's like everybody's story is as valid as the next person's story. They might not have the same privilege. They might not have had the same exposure. But actually, you know, we're all exactly the same. We all live, uh, kind of no pun intended, we all live and die, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the same way, um, different times. But still, there's something very universal about what's happening on the planet now, I think, in terms of... I think it's exciting. It it's is good. It's really an exciting time. It is. Let's talk about death in your experience. I know that you were there for your father mm -hmm. when he went through his dying process. Can you share a little bit I would be happy that? to share that yeah. because I, I really believe what my father and I went through, and I love saying this because I mean it with all my heart, was the best thing he and I ever did together. And that usually throws people a little bit, and maybe that's a good thing. But it really and truly was. For I have so many good memories, scuba diving with he and my brother, all these great memories. But to be there that last seven, eight days that he was alive, to be holding him when he took his last breath, I, I just think it was the most joyful thing I've ever done. And that seems strange because people go, how could that possibly be joyful? I get it. But joy is a state of being. Mm. It's not pleasure, it's not happiness. It's this connection to spirit. And being with someone who takes their last breath, is there any better connection to spirit? And my father, of course, made sure he made it a teaching point as he died. He said a lot of things that were extremely funny, challenging. In fact, the last thing he said before uh, he started literally floating, he told me he was floating to the door, and I said, Dad, I can go with you to the door, I can't go through the door with you. He said, watch and learn. That is such a dad thing, <laughs> watch and learn. And he challenged me, my father died in my arms, I called the hospice nurse who was with me, she came in, and she said yes, she said, well, let me leave you alone. I had just rolled my father, because he was getting bed sores, and I was caring for that, and as I rolled him back, I guess the fluid in his lungs dropped out briefly, and he took a gasp looking at me. Now, I will tell you most sincerely, my father was no longer in his body. He had left. Hmm. I was helping his body die at that point. But that just about did me in. You know, I'm like, <gasps> you know, and the hospital, I called out to the hospice nurse and she came back in and said, what? And I told her and she looked at him breathing again. And I said, have you seen this before? And she goes, just once. And I'm like, okay, just once. I'm like, thank you, dad. And I got back into bed with him. I held him another three or four hours and then he died peacefully. And it was a really beautiful thing because I went and got clothes for him, dressed him, waited for there's a, a person who comes from the hospice to certify that you know he has died and then i stayed with him until they came and picked up his body a couple hours later and as soon as i shut the front door and his body was gone i was alone i walked straight fully clothed out into his swimming pool and jumped into it and burst into tears 
because for seven days I had, you know, been there caring for him, trying to make sure he got to say goodbye to everybody he wanted to say goodbye to, really trying to do it right mm. and honor him and making him a meal he wanted and just all the wonderful things. And there's much more to it, which I'm going to write about. Actually, I'm going to follow up these books with a story about uh, Nikki's actual death, Patu's actual death, with photos this time instead of uh, just illustrations, and then a talk about my father's death because it was helping those two dogs die that gave me the courage and the clarity each time I got better at it. And that's why I think it's so important that children, you know, learn early before they even have the experience mm. of death. What you can do, what, you know, what do you do for a pet? So that as it builds into a human experience, maybe they're more prepared. But helping my father die was a game changer for me. And I just really, you know, my dream is to have my own hospice. Hmm. How many people say that? But I would love to have my own hospice. I have so many ideas of how I could, you know, do it differently. And uh, I'm holding that vision. So that well, might be my next I was going to say then, I, I kind of, as we sit here, and unless that desire goes away, I, I suspect you will have a hospice. But... Uh, you, I mean, you said so much, but... I know, did I answer your question? No, I, no. I did kind of go off I, I mean, really, it, it's perfect because a couple of things hit me as I was listening to you. So having been there, um, having been there at the death of a dog and the last few days of my grandmother and um, also been there an hour after my soul sister Nina gave birth to her daughter Ileana, I remember the same energy was in the room. Mm -hmm. Death and birth. And, and, and what I experience is it's raw, it's emotional, sure, but it's super present. Like you become so present with what's going on when death is in the room. And the same with birth. And I think there is this incredible opening beyond the body that happens that is quite universal because so many people that I know who've been there with people who've passed over will say the same thing. They'll go, it was the most profound experience that we ever had because everybody's really aware mm -hmm. that, oh, we're not in a pattern, we're not in our usual, oh, I'm just muddling through my day. We all know that pay attention because these moments are precious and they might be the end. So I, I, that spiritual energy that you hear people speak about, and same with people who've had near-death experiences, it's very powerful. It is. It really is. And I want people to feel good about it and be proud of it and not be afraid of it. Maybe push themselves a little bit to do it a little more than they would normally want to. But, you know, you need support. I wish, you know, I hadn't been alone as much because I was tired. I had gotten pretty tired. And then after my dad left, I spent the next five days cleaning out every drawer in his house, every, you know, just getting it all organized for my sister who was going to take over next. She did a beautiful job handling the next phases. And I had to wait for the death certificate before I could cremate my father. And I got the permission to cremate my father on a Friday, I believe it was. And... It was an hour drive south of where he lived, and I had a car pick me up because I knew there was no way I was going to be able to drive myself down and back. Drove down, uh, and luckily um, I was going alone, and a friend of his had said to me, you're not going alone, I'm going with you. And I was, I was grateful. I could have done it, but again, it was awfully nice, you know, that it worked out that way. And she went with me, and I remember going in. What I had done all week after my father had died and I had told everyone, they, they didn't think he would die as fast as he did, but I knew my dad. When my dad made up his mind, he was done. 
So I had set his desk up with a candle, photos of him, and people brought things all week, the notes to my father, all sorts of lovely things. And I piled them all up on his desk. And this was sweet. I called my husband and I said, um, I need you to FedEx me Mrs. Beasley. And he goes, who's Mrs. Beasley? Oh, Mrs. Beasley. He, I had a doll from the 60s and 70s from a show called Mrs. Beasley. And it had been a very profound experience between my dad because all of our traveling growing up, my father had me on one, you know, passed out traveling in airports as kids mm -hmm. and Mrs. Beasley in this arm because, you know, she had to go with me. And then at one point, just to back up a little bit, a, one of our dogs had chewed off Mrs. Beasley's fingers and I was devastated because she was like sort of my constant, you know, support wherever we moved. And my father said, don't worry, die, go to bed, I'll fix her. And the next morning I woke up and he had glued as best he could oh. her tips on, but he band-aided each of the places where, so this was Mrs. Beasley. She was my childhood memory of my dad. So my husband lovingly FedExes her overnight for a ridiculous amount of money. But the day of cremation, Mrs. Beasley and all these objects go with me down to the crematorium. They bring my father out. I asked to see him. I placed all the objects on him. Mm -hmm. And he looked just like he'd left a week ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was dead. He was not in his body. That I was clear of. But I wanted to be there when it happened to honor his process. And, and it just felt right to me. And... I put everything in. I stood, they let you go into a room with a glass window right in front of the retort furnace, it's called. It's a special type of furnace for cremation. My father had a pacemaker, so they had to remove that because they can explode in the oven. It's, a, you know, all these things are very commonplace, but mm. it, you know, most people don't know them, so I like to share that. Mm. And I stood behind the glass and watched, you know, him be taken in his body, not him, his body, and stood there about another 45 minutes. And it's a, two to four hour process, so you don't necessarily stay for the whole thing, has to cool down and so forth. And then came back and uh, the lovely lady who went with me, she held my hand the whole way back. I never saw her again. Hmm. It was nice. Hmm. And how... <laughs> and I'm saying, <laughs> yeah. it's so no, joyful. No, no. <laughs> but it hey, was. It hey, was we real. Do, if we need some tears on an episode about conscious living okay. and dying, come on, come on, <laughs> give, give the people what they want. Um, no, I, I think I was going to ask you, how do you feel about your relationship with your dad now? Because many people I speak to, and my own experience with my grandmother especially, when someone that you're close to like that has passed, mm -hmm they often become far more present in your life in a completely different way. And I'm curious how that played out for you. Well, thank you for saying that. One, the Z's said that too, when I got to ask them about how would they explain death to a child. Mm. They said the beauty of death is that you actually can have a much stronger, more conscious connection with the animal or the mm. parent or the grandparent or whatever on the other side. And I would say absolutely, because the man I feel now as my father doesn't come to me looking like my father. He comes as an energetic presence and he is the soul who was in a body. He's not a body that mm. had a soul. He now comes to me as the soul that he is still to this day. Mm. And I feel a wonderful connection. I feel him with me a great deal of the time. If I'm in a pickle, sometimes I'll ask him a question and I feel, I feel an answer. You know, I don't hear his voice, but mm. I feel an answer. 
It's extremely comforting. It, it's exactly why I'm not afraid of death, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really a fan of pain. Let's be clear on that. I think that's the truth <laughs> for many of because I have the same thing. I'm not afraid of death at all, but suffering but is pain, a whole yeah. other thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, uh, but it's a game changer, and that's why I think more people who experience that won't be afraid to share, whether it's with their children's or their friends, whatever. But I think it's a, I think it's a key a key piece you mentioned. So thank you for saying that, because mm. I think it's really important. Well, it's funny, we're, we're just kind of wrapping up here. So I thought, well, there's probably one last thing I can really ask you. And um, if anybody has tuned into this show specifically because mm -hmm. the title appealed to them and they're grieving right now, is there anything, as we know, grief is a very personal thing, depending on who you are, but is there anything that you could offer to somebody who is, is right now in the pain of the grief process and feeling a little underneath the grief process and wondering if they're going to get out of it again, which I'm sure, I know I've been there, I'm sure you've been there, but I was wondering if there's anything from your time in working with people that, that's just a universal truth that could help people through that moment. Big question. That's yes. a big question. Yes. <laughs> and I, I don't have a single answer. And again, because it would be situational, I would honor where you were, you know, if, like I said before, if you were really in a deep, deep depressed place, if you were just feeling lonely. I think connecting with nature, if I had to just pick something that universally works, nature because mm. it's through nature we feel that spiritual connection and maybe that's your stepping stone to feeling the connection to the person on the other side but whether it's ocean hiking sitting in your garden gardening i love putting my hands in the soil mm. i don't know if that seems too simple but the answers aren't big mm. i think no i think that's that's perfect and it, it's interesting something that comes to me as I listen to you too, is I think it's really important not to have shame about grief. Mm -mm. Because I think the way that other people can react to us when we're in grief or our own preconceived notions about how emotional we are allowed to be and for how long mm -hmm. um, can sometimes intersect when you're in a deep grief process. And I think there's often this, I should be pulling myself out of this. Whereas I, I know from personal experience, I, when, I, when I fought grief, it just held on to me longer. And when I surrendered and was like, oh, I'm, I'm a mess right now. And this, this is gonna take as long as it takes and I'm gonna get whatever support I need. Um, then the grief process started to accelerate because I wasn't trying to kill it off. It wanted to talk to me and to get my attention. And Yeah, don't so, rush, you can't rush grief. Yeah. And it's not, and ask, ask for help, find mm -hmm. the resources. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, find the people who are happy to hear you talk about it yet again. Yeah, I think stuffing it is a is not the way to go. Well, and Di, thank you for feeling compelled to create Wisdom Transcends because your website, wisdomtranscends.com, is another resource that is now in the world for people to so. explore that conversation. So that's that's a perfect ending to our conversation. And thank you so much for being here. And thank you for what you're feeling compelled to do and for sharing with us here your journey and and your behind the scenes experience thank you lee thanks so you can check out diet wisdomtranscends.com for more information on everything that we've covered and the work that she's doing thank you for tuning in 
You have been listening to Impact the World. For more of my work, please visit leeharrisenergy.com. And to attend my five-day Impact the World in-person training event held in Scottsdale, Arizona in April 2020, visit leeharrisenergy.com forward slash impact.